0: All right, well, Good morning. Welcome to Element. My name is Mike Harmon. That's kind of hot. I'll back up. <laughs> uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, how about those Dodgers? <laughs> Just a couple fans anyway. Huh? All right. Well, besides the Dodgers, we have something else that we can be excited about this weekend. Um, our first church plant, Element, Colorado Springs, is launching this afternoon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so to support that, Mike Reed, Eric Gifruti, Aaron, and Marianne Carlberg uh, flew out Friday to be there to support the Whitakers and the Alps as they begin this afternoon. So we all drew straws as to who would get to go, and you lost. Um, you're stuck with me. Um, anyway, uh, we're excited about the launch this afternoon. And uh, so anyway, this weekend and on to this year, we are finishing up our studies uh, for 2018, and we're going through the book by Tim Keller called The Reason for God. Uh, the Sunday morning messages touch on the chapters and the things that are in the book, but not to great detail, and so we would highly recommend that you would get the book and read it if you don't have a copy, and then stay up on the chapters as we go through them. Uh, we at Element are wanting to use this year to build up and remembering to live our lives in a focused way uh, on the gospel and in a more hands-on and real way as we do this series, so that we can answer questions that our culture and our community has, uh, that we would have ways to respond um, real and authentically. So stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Father... Um, We resist, and sometimes we balk at the idea that we're not the smartest, we're not the most understanding, that we really don't know what's best. And so, Lord, uh, we're humbled when we admit and own the fact that we aren't the smartest, we aren't the most wise, but we do have hope, God, because we're not left to our own thoughts, we're not left to our own ways, but rather we find hope that you have come to rescue us and give us the means, Lord, to have your wisdom and your understanding. So, Lord, uh, give us mercy and grace that we would enable us to trust you and in your wisdom and your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please.
1: So we are rounding out the 2018, as we've been saying, by going through Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. And this week, you're actually getting me on video because we have a very exciting thing of our first church plant in Colorado Springs. So that's where I am, and hopefully this video isn't weird. And if it is, don't say anything because... You're still going to have to sit through it anyway. Uh, what we have to understand is that the gospel is meant to be a present reality. And that's why we go through this book. And that's why we talk about all the things that we do at Element. We believe that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is meant to be lived out in communities today with other people. And so the reason that we do this series is to understand the truth claims that God makes throughout the scriptures. And that we can still live in a reasonable faith today. That makes sense to the culture in which we live, that we can speak with wisdom and knowledge and grace. And that a lot of the objections people have to the historic Christian faith come because they don't understand or don't know what the Bible actually teaches. Uh, a lot of people think that the Bible is a bunch of these old stories that people just kind of pass along and they're kind of weird and have no bearing on today. But if we can be a people who speak intelligently into our culture of what the scriptures actually, actually speak about, we can do a lot in bringing about the good that God calls us to be in this world that people can hear and know and believe the truth. And so today we're going to look at this thing about science and Christianity. Are they at odds with one another? How do they, they come together? Because people say things like, I can't believe in faith because it's not verifiable. It's something I can't see. This goes all the way back to what we talked about in the first week during this series that people have this warped view because Christians begin to tell everybody that faith is just believing something. Muster it up enough in your heart, and when you have enough belief, well, that's faith. And that's not what faith really is. Faith does involve that, that belief. Faith does involve, at times, feelings. But faith in the scriptures is this Greek word that literally means Trust. And I told you this all the way back in week one, and hopefully you wrote this down. I said, Christianity is a truth claim about historical events that can be investigated just like any other event of history. And today that gets so lost when we talk about faith. Because what our culture does in its divided ways, it puts reason and logic on one side. And puts faith, which is belief without any evidence, on the other side. And we need to understand that Christianity is tied to history in a way that is deep and profound. And all of human history really centers on the life of Jesus. So many people today now say, well, hasn't science disproved Christianity? And I think that's really funny because the only thing that science seems to disprove given more time is itself. A lot of times what science does is it comes along and says, oh, we used to believe this, but that wasn't right. Now we believe this thing over here, and and as we get smarter, science tends to keep disproving itself. But no, it hasn't disproven Christianity, and it hasn't disproven the Bible. Actually, as archaeology catches up to what the Bible has said, it continues to verify what the scriptures teach. So let me say this from the outset. When I'm using words today like Christianity or science, I'm referring to very broad terms broad terms And there are Christians out there who make some bizarre science claims that aren't really true. Then they don't get those from the Bible. But there's also people in the realm of science who make some very, very bizarre claims that not all scientists would adhere to. And so we can't really judge either side by the extremes that are in it. So think about it this way. Science is man's interpretation of nature. And theology is man's interpretation of the Bible. And I don't think there is any contradiction Whatsoever between nature and the scriptures Between nature and the Bible The problems come really between science and theology How we interpret nature And how different people interpret the scriptures And I hope that makes sense I mean think about the creation narrative in the Bible. Sometimes people have gotten mad at me for saying this. But Genesis was not meant to be a scientific treaty on when the world was created. We as western linear thinkers, what we like to do is come up to the scriptures and we like to say what was the hour and the minute and the second that everything happened. And so we look at at dates and genealogies and kingdoms and some people will say, "Well, the earth is between 6 and 10,000 years old because these are the dates that the Bible gives." And you have people people... People who argue for the age of a very young earth. Sometimes they want to talk to me about it. And I'm like, great, you can believe that. I, I don't have any problem with you believing that. Other people come along the other side and they say, no, we have radiometric dating methods and carbon dating and the earth is 6 to 10 billion years old. And I'm always like, okay, great. Because the point of Genesis and what it talks about is that God did it. That there is a creator, and that creator is not us. We were made and designed to be in a relationship with God. And we may not, on this side of heaven, really understand how or when it all happened. But our focus should be our creator. And so when Moses compiles Genesis and all those genealogies with all those lifespans, it's because the God of this universe is bigger than things that we really understand. And he is the source of life, and he is at work in human history. Many of the things that you see in the scriptures are reminders of people with normal, average, everyday lives that God steps into and does something amazing. And when you read these long lifespans, we lose a lot of the original meaning of those ages, but they had meaning when it was written for the people who read them. The Bible is bigger than Western linear thinking. And as I said, we'll probably never truly understand creation uh, uh, and how it all comes about, this side of heaven. But even Big Bang theorists are now postulating that there wasn't just one bang. It was now many bangs in many places because it looks like creation just sprang into existence. (laughs) What does that sound like, right? Ethan Siegel, an astrophysicist and science writer for Forbes, writes this. What all the evidence points to is a counterintuitive but no less true conclusion, that the Big Bang occurred everywhere all at once. The evidence for this is overwhelming and comes from the universe itself. The universe, if we look at the large scale structure of how galaxies cluster, of what the leftover glow from the Big Bang looks like, of what the average density is in regions more than a few hundred million light years in size, we find two important observational facts about the universe. It appears to have the same properties everywhere and it looks the same in all directions. In physics terms, this means the universe is homogenous that means the same in all locations and isotropic the same in all directions now it's very interesting because that does sound a lot like genesis 1 1 and there is no problem with what he just said and genesis 1 1 together in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth that god made all things Genesis 1, it is poem and it's lyrics and it has movement and then Genesis 2 becomes narrative and it's all meant to help focus us on what is important, who God is and our relationship with Him. The scriptures show us the beauty and majesty of this creative God who is full of love and life and intends for us to live life with Him and we get so self-obsessed and so self-focused to the point where we start to destroy ourselves and put ourselves in the place of God. We call this sin. It's rebellion. It's who God called us to be. But God then comes into our lives and he provides us a way out of the mess that we have made into relationship with him again. And this is really what the scriptures are about. So we can have lives lived with him, that our lives can be put together the way they were meant to be, That have the fullness in who he is. And the whole movement of the Bible is God redeeming us from our broken way of life. And there is no contradiction in that with nature and objective verifiable science. And today I'm going to throw a few quotes at you from, from different people because I think they help show the wide range of how the subject of faith and science is viewed. As I said the first week of this series, many people today think all science is based on fact and all faith is based out of wishful thinking. Uh, Richard Dawkins, who is an atheist, he said, Faith is a cop-out for ignorance. Science is based on fact, where religion is based on belief without evidence. Many people believe that, that faith is something that has no proof to it. But as we've constantly talked about in this series, our faith has reasonable proofs to it. The arguments are typically laid out there that science is rational, it's investigative, it's objective, it's testable. And religious faith, it is unreflective and unproven and dogmatic. Many people think that faith is opposed to facts in some way and that it runs away from knowledge. And I need you to understand that, that we as a people do need faith. Uh, faith leads us into almost all the things that we do. Uh, but again, faith in the scriptures has the connotation of trust, not blind faith. Anselm, who was a a monk in the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1093 to 1109, said, I believe in order to understand. Now, Richard Dawkins, he thinks that's dumb and that it's only after a leap of faith do you actually believe anything. But that's not what Anselm was saying. But this is actually what scientists have also said about their own craft. Uh, Max Planck, who's the originator of quantum theory, In 1932, he said, science demands also the believing spirit. And over the entrance to the gate of the temple of science are written the words, ye must have faith. Werner Heisenberg said, faith is the mainspring of scientific endeavor. I believe in order that I may act. I act in order that I might understand. Let me give you just one more. Uh, Albert Einstein, I don't know if you might have heard of that guy. Uh, He's got great hair. He says, confidence for scientific endeavor springs from the sphere of religion. Science, how it comes about, is based out of beliefs about how things really are. Faith, about how things really are. Philosopher of science Michael Paloni argues that Anselm's words, I believe in order to understand, is exactly what science does when it is at its best. Facts are essential, but there's a reason why scientists choose to go into the fields that they do. There's a personal interest. And he denies that the scientific method can yield truth just mechanically. Uh, that that knowing and, and how we know and how formalized all relies upon some sort of belief. Meaning there there is always an element of faith involved in science. And he says that science will never be totally objective. Because it's executed by scientists who have opinions and who have interests and who have beliefs. Michael Horton says knowing depends on what is known. It depends on what is known. Because of the great success of science in our world today, some have come to the conclusion that for something to be real and true, it must be full of science and mathematics. But but that's ridiculous because how we know things contradicts all of that stuff. If you've ever been in love, you know this. How you love someone is not the same way as mathematically knowing a formula for something. And if it is, I don't think you're really in love. My wife has fruit trees in the backyard, and the way she knows these trees is different than an arborist would know the trees. An arborist would know why they grow the way they do, and what's the best season, and this and that. My wife goes out, she will trim the trees, she'll put fungicide on the tree, she'll pick the fruit off the tree, she'll make jam with that fruit. It's a different way of knowing, but they're both ways of knowing, and they can both be qualified as knowledge. And so when we talk about science, we have to understand that it has its own faith-based system. And when they speak about knowing, they assume certain things because they're making judgments upon past knowledge. Like, if you think the universe is and was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends that just came together, you would really have no science whatsoever. The, the actual war between faith and science goes back to about 150 years, uh, when the word science actually first came about. Originally, science was called natural philosophy, And it was connected to all these other disciplines like theology. And around this time, a guy named Immanuel Kant comes around and says, it's impossible for us to really talk about God and know Him, that God is wholly other. There is no way for us to do that, and that's theology. And then all of a sudden, these disciplines start dropping off, and they become divided, and the war between faith and science kind of begins. Even to where today, we hate to even use the word religion. We will use the word spiritual because we don't want to actually talk about faith and have it coming close to anything like a like a science. Because religion was really a lot of times connected to science. Do you realize that the very task of science feeds from a presupposition of belief in God? It's actually, again, how science came about. That God created the world in knowable ways. And He wanted us to learn about it, to know about it. There is no scientific discovery that we have ever come across and God was like, oh no, I didn't think they'd figure that out. I think whenever we find something, God is like, yes, now you get it. Isn't that really cool? Wait till you see the next thing I did. You're going to be really blown away. And then we think we find the next thing. we're Wrong about it and wrong about it and wrong about it and wrong about it and then we get it and God's like yeah finally you got there that's great because God is like a father and he loves for his kids to learn and grow think of Genesis 1 3 and God said let there be light that has been wreaking havoc with scientists ever since three years ago at a Christmas Eve service I talked to you about the properties of light and how it confounds scientists because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do I told you if you ever stood on a sidewalk and you looked in a window, uh, you could see the things behind the window, but you could also see your reflection in the window itself. And that's because some of these particles of light from the sun called photons went through the glass and they illuminated the things behind the glass so you could see it. But some of them bounced off the glass so you could see your own reflection in the glass. Why do certain particles go through the glass and why do other particles not not to go through the glass? We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. The phenomenon can't even be predicted about which ones will pass through the glass and which ones bounce off. The answer is this thing. We don't know. We're trying to figure it out. we been trying to figure it out for ages. I think God's just waiting for us to get it. And he'd be like, see, it's so cool when you th- figure this stuff out. I think scientists can turn possibilities and list all kinds of potential outcomes about light. But in the end, that's the best that can be done. Werner Heisenberg, as a physicist, was the first to name this disturbing truth about things that happen in the quantum world. He noted, he said, you can measure a particle's location or you can measure its speed, but you can't measure both. They now call this Heisenberg's uncertainty principle because we haven't figured it out. We're just a little uncertain. And this raises all kinds of questions then about the unpredictability of the universe. In, in nature, there are waves and there are particles, like dust particles and sound waves, or like waves in the ocean, or particles that get stuck in your teeth that you didn't brush out, or food that gets stuck in your friend's beard. Those, those are particles. And the conventional wisdom for a number of years is it's either particles or waves. Something, something has to be one or the other. Particles are like bullets. Waves are like spread out. Particles can be divided. Waves can't. Uh, or particles can't be divided and waves can But then there's light, and light is made up of particles, but it's also a wave. And if you were to ask light a wave question, if you can ask light questions, it would respond to you like a wave. But if you asked it a particle question, it would respond like a particle. And these are two mutually exclusive things that have always thought to be either or, and they turn out to be both at the same time. It'd be like if you went out and you tried to play tennis. And you had, and you had the ball coming at you and sometimes you could, you could hit the ball back and sometimes the ball would just go right through your racket. I know if you've ever played tennis, that's how you feel sometimes because you swing and you just miss the ball, but it actually, you tried to hit the ball and it actually went through your racket. That's, that's what light does. You don't, people don't know why it would just go through the racket. And so you'd expect there to be a reason for this unexpected behavior. And you take into account speed and force and characteristics of the materials. You'd assume that you can figure this out if you could figure everything out around it. You would apply laws of basic motion and physics, and you'd think in similar circumstances with things of similar sizes and speeds, and you'd be doing what scientists have done for a very long time what they are doing is operating under a set of assumptions that the universe functions with certain laws of motions that can be known. You'd be functioning with a belief, with a faith system. People who don't really understand true science are trying to tell us that there is a concrete difference between the physical world that you can see and the immaterial world that you can't really see. They say one exists, but the other doesn't exist. And yet, as we go deeper and deeper scientists are beginning to realize that the distinction between material and immaterial isn't really that big at all. Maybe the distinction between physical and spiritual isn't that big at all. Scientists are now telling us that the line between matter and spirit may not be a line at all. In an article about physicists in the Higgs-Boson particle, Jeffrey Kruger in Time Magazine says, they're grappling with something bigger than mere physics, something that defies the mathematical and brushes up at least fleetingly against the spiritual. And so this image uh, that we have in our minds of a scientist that stands back, watching, examining, analyzing things from a, a perceived place of non-involvement is simply not true. It's not true. Like we have this idea that there is this isolated, detached assumption that things just exist in empty space. But as they, as they drill down into empty space, we start to see that empty space isn't really that empty and that light and the quantum world all teach us that space is actually alive. And we're all involved. And this goes all the way back to which particle passes through the glass in the shop window and which reflects back. Again, we don't know because we don't have all the answers. We can predict and identify patterns, but the most basic level is we don't know. And the world is a surprise. And God means for it to be a surprise to us. It surprises scientists on a regular basis. And so science has not figured everything out. And when we people object to the idea of God based on science, there there's the idea that there is nothing more beyond our tangible, provable, hard evidence, observation, experience world, they aren't taking the entire world into account. And a brief reading of modern science actually moves us to understand that the most intelligent, up-to-date, and informed scientists are constantly surprised by just how much more there is to the universe. Paul Davies in the New York Times writes an op-ed piece. This is what he says. It's actually called Taking Science on Faith, which is kind of interesting. He says, when scientists probe to a deeper level of the subatomic structure, or astronomers extend the reach of their instruments, they expect to encounter additional elegance of a mathematical order. And so far, this faith has been justified. As they look out, they expect certain things to react a certain way. They expect a law, something to make sense, which comes to, well, how do you then justify that order? Oxford mathematician John Lennox says this, At the heart of all science lies the conviction that the universe is orderly. And this is what the Bible teaches us. Uh, so he goes on and says, Without this deep conviction, science would not be possible. So we're entitled to ask, where does the conviction come from? He says, Melvin Calvin, Nobel Prize winner in biochemistry, seems in little doubt about its providence. As I try to discern the origin of that conviction, I seem to find it in a basic notion discovered two or 3,000 years ago and enunciated first in the Western world by the ancient Hebrews, namely that the universe is governed by a single God, and it is not the product of the whims of many gods, each governing his or her own province according to his own laws this monotheistic view seems to be the historical foundation for modern science this is what we need to understand and we also need to understand that there then becomes a difference between science which is looking for truth and what i would call scientism which is more like a religion that has an ideology that wants to push itself forward and deny what other religions state around them about the existence of god See, scientism is like a scientific materialism. It's a, it's a view of the world that says it can account for all phenomenon in the world, but it can't because there are other ways of knowing. Science cannot account for love or philosophy or ethics or law or beauty or art, none of those. A scientism worldview will end up cutting people off from what makes us truly human, life as it was meant to be. Sometimes people call Christianity, they they call it determinism, meaning God is sovereign and in control and he determines things. But scientism is essentially just scientific determinism because what it says is you are what you are. There's nothing you can say or do about it. You're a bag of chemistry that's going to fizzle out over 80 years. That's scientism. And scientism comes into conflict with Christianity because they're both faiths. And Ian Hutchinson from MIT had a blog post. I'll link to it on our website. I'll put a little blog post up this week that goes along with this message. And he states that he believes in the resurrection of Jesus. It's a long article. I'm just going to quote you a little portion out of it, though. He says this. To explain how a scientist can be a Christian is actually quite simple. Science cannot and does not disprove the resurrection. Natural science describes the normal, reproducible working of the world of nature. Indeed, the key meaning of nature, as Boyle emphasized, is the normal course of events. Miracles like the resurrection are inherently Abnormal. It does not take modern science to tell us that humans don't rise from the dead. People knew that perfectly well in the first century, just as they knew that the blind from birth don't, as adults, regain their sight, or water doesn't instantly turn into wine. Maybe science has made the world seem more comprehensible, although in some respects it seems more wonderful and mysterious. Maybe superstition was more widespread in the first century than it is today, although the dreams of today's sports fans and the widespread uh, interest in the astrology pages sometimes make me wonder... Maybe people were more open to the possibility of miracles than we are today. Still, still, the fact that the resurrection was impossible in the normal course of events was obvious in the first century as it is for us. Indeed, that is why it was seen as a great demonstration of God's power. St. Lewis talks about how the farther we get into society, the more we tend to look back on older societies and think that they were just ignorant people. And he says, and this is a problem that moderns always have. And so I will tell you guys that God is knowable in an historic context. Theology and trust is a valuable discipline, but our faith is not blind. It is why we are meant to be a people who study the scriptures and relate everything back to God, to what he did historically to rescue us. Yes, there are Christians who say, well, faith is a leap in the dark. Soren Kierkegaard called faith uh, a leap of faith to go and believe. And this has led to these, these ideas today that you just find something that works for you, whatever faith works. But I don't think it's a good idea. Because throughout the course of history in the world, there has been some faith where you would sacrifice your children. Is, is that okay if it works for you? I would say no, it's not okay. What if your faith tells you it's okay to murder people for the glory of God? Is, is that okay? I would say no, it's not okay. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. When we talk about Christian faith, it isn't this thing that sits in a realm that ever goes untested. Our faith is based on past credibility of what God has done that gives us a present confidence and a future hope because our promise-making God has always been faithful and good for His promises. The Apostle Paul argues for this truth about, about faith and, the, and historicity kind of together, that, that it's not just blind faith. Uh, let me read this to you. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 20. And Paul says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? So he starts off with the historical truth claim. And then he says this. But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. See, Paul doesn't say, if if it turns out not to be true, just believe it, just muster up more belief. That's not what he says. He says it is based in historical facts of what God has done. And in verse 20, he then says, but in fact, Christ has been raised. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he will go on and point to all the people that Jesus showed himself to when he rose from the grave. And eventually he says, there's 500 people at one time that saw him. Most of them are still alive. Go and ask them if you have any doubts. Because it's not about blind faith it's about trusting what god has actually done. 2nd peter 1:16 for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we, when we made known to you the power and coming of our lord jesus christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. what we need to understand is that faith and science do not have to be enemies. they can and do go hand in hand. and the beauty of what the scriptures want us to learn and explore and know is to know god better. So we could talk about him in this world in a way that makes sense about the good news. That we have faith in the God who came to save us. And that faith is a reasonable, true faith. That our God has been good for his promises. And there are things written in the scriptures that we are never really going to understand this side of eternity. And yet we keep trying to figure them out. And whatever things we do figure out, it doesn't contradict the things that have been said in the scriptures. We trust that God is real and true. Science and Christianity are not at odds. They are not at odds. Because the scriptures and nature are not at odds. And so we are a people who get to trust what God has said and what God has done. And this happens more, I think, if we're a people who actually start to read the Bible for what it actually says and not for what other people tell us they think it says, actually read it ourselves. And we understand that a lot of the crazy things that people say aren't things that are actually in there and we trust the truth as God has revealed it this is one of the reasons that bring us to communion every week this is why you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for you and me because God made promises and he was good for those promises and as Paul said it's not just about mustering up enough belief that Christ did it he said if it didn't actually happen we would be pitied above all people but historically it happened And that's the reason we have a true and real and knowable faith. Is that because it happened. And so I invite you as you take communion today, take great confidence in what Christ has done to rescue us in real historical ways. That the good news of the gospel is that we get to live and have relationship with God again because of what Christ has done. Because of the promises that God made to rescue and restore and bring us back in. The band is going to start to come up. Uh, as they do, please feel free to take communion and remember what God has done to rescue us. Uh, there will be diggings and elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you have maybe been in a place in, in your life where you found it hard to trust or believe because you thought that science and Christianity were somehow at odds, uh, I want you to have great confidence that they're not. And they would love to pray with you if you felt like you're kind kind of stuck in that place today. Again, uh, as, as I, as I want to say throughout this series, our faith is reasonable and right and true. And we need to be a people who have great confidence in what God has done because God rescues and saves his people. Um, we, we invite you to uh, give. Uh, there are offering boxes next to every single door. God gave so much to us, giving is part of our worship. It's a response to what he has done. And there's food outside. Grab something to eat, take some sermon notes, ask one another some of the questions out of those sermon notes. And maybe, you know, go a little bit deeper than that. You know, where are the places that you thought that science maybe has disproved Christianity? Or maybe somebody said something that you thought disproved Christianity based on some scientific claim. And and talk about those things. And then, if you can't have all your questions answered, well, feel free to send us an email or or talk to us or something like that. And and we'll help you find the answer. Because, guys, our, our faith is a knowable faith based in the real world that God has created. And yes, God at times does do miracles, which are abnormal in the course of human events. And he does do those things, but we know that they're abnormal. And that's why we call them miracles. And so I would invite you to be a people who have great hope and trust in the person of who Jesus is. So uh, let's pray.
0: Father, we're grateful that what we believe and what we put our trust in is verifiable, it is historical, it's reasonable, and that our world, nature, creation is not in conflict with that. Lord, you actually have created such order and such design and such beauty that we get to live in, and uh, Lord, it's obvious to us if we would look. Um, but, Lord, we at times experience and see the chaos, the disruption of the order, of the goodness of your creation. We um, we see it in the world around us, and we experience it in our own lives. Lord, the chaos, because of our turning away, because of our choosing our own wisdom and understanding, because of choosing to go it alone, to go our own way, We've created and wrecked your creation. We've created chaos. And Lord, yet you didn't leave us there. You've come along to rescue us. You've come to turn us back to you, to provide a way home. And his name is Jesus. Lord, his life, his death and resurrection has created our redemption, our recreation, that we might know you, that we might yield to you, that we can come back. And Lord, not only that, but because of Jesus, you've come to dwell in our midst. And specifically, you've come to live in each of us individually by the Holy Spirit. Father, that's amazing that you would choose to dwell within us, our brokenness, our rebellion our idolatry and yet you choose to live in this Lord that in our chaos and in the world of chaos the places we suffer the places that we experience decay and disruption you walk with us to comfort us to sustain us and Lord because of that we have the ability to comfort others we have the ability to reflect you accurately, to show who you really are to the world that we live in, Lord, that we can be authentic people who suffer, who struggle, but who know the God who walks with us. We can be relevant in this world where there's continuity between our belief in you and in the world and the nature that we live in. So God, help us. We ask for your grace to enable us to walk with you to hear you when you speak to us. Um, As we would experience your rescuing, we would find hope and peace. We'd find rest. Lord, you are good. And out of your goodness, Lord, you've rescued. You've called us back to yourself. You've given us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to respond to you. Lord, we give You our trust. We put our hope in You. We believe the truth. And pray that You would enable us to be those who reflect You, to be reconcilers, to be Your ambassadors in this world. Thank You for that grace. In Jesus' name, amen.